There's no sugarcoating it. It's hot. Phoenicians typically deal with it by groaning, then sucking it up to either brave the outdoors for necessary trips, or we stay inside all day, absorbing air conditioning like a penguin on an ice floe. We're so used to the heat that we scoff at anyone else who dare says their weather is hot. Oh, it's 98 degrees? I wish it was only 98 degrees. But the truth is, places that don't normally experience extreme heat are frying up. Last week, some 40 million Americans were under dangerous and intense heat alerts. Across the plains and into the Mississippi Valley, Temperatures rose between 10 and 15 degrees above normal. In Europe, heat waves are fueling concerns about wildfires and people's health. As we've been hearing in the UK, an amber warning of extreme heat has come into force across most of England and parts of Wales. The alert will extend to the whole of Wales and southern Scotland from tomorrow when a red heat warning, meaning there's a risk to life, will come into force in parts of England. Here in the valley, triple digits are nothing new. But longer stretches of extreme heat and hot nights above 90 degrees are happening more and more. Just last week, a video from a Scottsdale home showed a UPS driver stumble and collapse from heat exhaustion after dropping off a package. It was 108 degrees that day. You're listening to Valley 101 a podcast by the Arizona Republic and AZ Central that answers your questions about Metro Phoenix and beyond. I'm Kaylee Monahan, your producer for this episode. Last week, we heard of places to go to beat the heat. Today, we're exploring how extreme heat affects us. As a kid, I remember some extremely hot days. On June 26, 1990, Phoenix recorded its hottest temperature on record, 122 degrees. I can't say for certain that I remember that specific day. After all, I was not quite four years old then. But I do remember all the rituals of summer. Visits to swimming pools and water parks, running through the sprinklers, otter pops, and movies. Lots and lots of movies. I also distinctly remember our summer nights when the air would cool off to a perfect temperature that you could enjoy until bedtime. But the Phoenix Valley of my youth is not what we have today. Spending time outside at night, for example, feels like a thing of the past. I recently went to check my mail at 9 o'clock at night and I could feel the day's heat radiating from the concrete through my shoes. It was like walking inside an oven. I checked my phone. It was 95 degrees at nine at night. Of course, climate change is playing a role in our hotter temperatures. 
but I'm less interested in why it's getting hotter than how it affects us. Since 2020, when the coronavirus drove all of us into isolation, I began to see more and more people forced out of their homes. People who lost reliable incomes might have found themselves out on the street through no fault of their own. 2020 was a particularly hot and dry year, and 2021 was even worse. Heat is the number one weather-related killer in our state, and last year statewide, we saw about 520 people that died from the heat. Today, though, it's going to be a cooker. Temperatures are going to be well above normal, and they're going to be in a dangerous uh, spot for us. We're talking 114 degrees. It was another uh, day of temperatures well, well above <laughs> normal today after getting into record territory yesterday. Last summer, Phoenix didn't just break the record for the most 100 degree days in a year, but also the most 110 and 115 degree days. What does prolonged exposure to extreme heat do to the human body? Turns out, it's not pretty. I'm Dr. Will Heise. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix, and I'm a medical toxicologist. Dr. Heise is no stranger to the effects of extreme heat. When you're experiencing as high temperatures as we are now, you may quickly reach a body temperature that is really dangerous and unsuitable for human life. If we take the proper precautions, we can tolerate quite a lot of heat exposure. People have been living in hot climates like ours for centuries and have learned to survive. There's folks who are native to parts of the world where the kind of heat they're experiencing Phoenix is pretty typical for what they experience. For as long as we can look back, there's always been indigenous folks who lived in this part of Arizona, albeit without some of the city effects that we feel now. It becomes dangerous when people have to be outside for prolonged periods of time without adequate sun protection and fluids. And it could become life-threatening very quickly if someone can't cool down fast. Many of the patients Dr. Heisey sees come in not only with complications from heat exposure, but are also under the influence of substances such as drugs or alcohol. And that adds another layer of danger. You're not experiencing the heat the same as you are. You may choose to lay down on a hot sidewalk. You might be running around town and, and high and not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's really easy to get incredibly high body temperatures in that kind of setting. It's actually pretty easy to go to the point where you're incredibly ill very quickly. But if you survive that, you know, some of the things that can be long-term damage, you know, you have folks who get significant burns, even from sidewalks and from concrete at this kind of temperature. You know, whenever you have folks who are showing on the news that you can go and fry an egg on the sidewalk, if you fall on that, you will also burn. So what are the signs of heat stroke? increased body temperature, you'll experience fever-like symptoms. A core body temperature of 104 degrees Fahrenheit is considered a sign of heat stroke. Altered mental state or behavior. You may experience confusion, agitation, slurred speech, irritability, delirium, seizures, and potentially a coma, all from heat stroke. 
In heat stroke brought on by hot weather, your skin will feel hot and dry to the touch. However, in heat stroke brought on by strenuous exercise, your skin might feel alternatively dry or slightly moist from sweating. Nausea and vomiting, flushed skin, a throbbing headache, rapid breathing. A racing heart rate due to heat stress places a tremendous burden on your heart to help cool your body. And when you get to that point, then your body starts to rapidly rise in temperature. And that's when it gets especially dangerous. The kinds of things that we see as body temperatures rise are muscle breakdown, kidney failure, liver damage, and even to the point when you get a high enough temperature, then your, your brain starts to fail and it doesn't work appropriately. Sometimes short of substances, you stop experiencing the fact that you are too hot and you may just continue to heat up without recognizing what's going on. And the long-term effects of extreme heat aren't pleasant. In a recent Time article called What Extreme Heat Does to the Human Body, reporter Aaron Baker found that there are 27 different ways the human body succumbs to overheating, from kidney failure to blood poisoning as the lining in your gut disintegrates. If left untreated, you can die within hours. You can also have very long-lasting kidney and liver disease from really significant heat stroke. If you start to experience organ failure and are rescued, you could have lifelong complications. For example, digestive problems from damaged gut organs, or you could end up on dialysis due to kidney failure. Heat-related illnesses are a very serious problem. The Center for Climate and Energy Solutions reports that extreme heat is one of the leading causes of weather-related deaths in the United States. More than hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, floods, or extreme cold. The CDC says that on average more than 9,000 people are hospitalized annually from extreme heat. It also reports that nationwide, there are roughly 700 heat-related deaths annually. But the Environmental Protection Agency estimates it's more like 1,300 deaths each year. And here in the Valley? There were 338 deaths associated with heat in Maricopa County last year. 193 were directly caused by heat, and 145 are heat-related, with four deaths still under investigation. This is a 4.6% increase from 2020, and nearly a 70% increase from 2019. So what's going on? We have a lot of folks in Phoenix, more than we'd probably like to acknowledge, that don't have appropriate cooling mechanisms in their house. For whatever reason that is, maybe it's broken, maybe they are unable to afford the electricity to power it. Maybe their house was never built with an air conditioner, right? It has a swamp cooler that works somewhat well, but not as well when it is reaching 115 degrees and higher. And so we have a lot of folks who are unable to sort of get to where they'd like to to cool themselves. Then there are the unhoused. The Arizona Republic reported earlier this year that those experiencing homelessness is up 33% from 2020. That equates to some 5,000 people who are out on the streets, compared to more than 3,700 in 2020. There 
There are cooling stations throughout Metro Phoenix where people can get water and have access to other amenities to get relief from the high temperatures. HeatAZ.org lists all 169 valley-wide cooling locations that are available. I visited one of these sites. We're at a city-owned facility. It's actually owned by our city aviation department. This is Rachel Milney. I'm the deputy director of the Homeless Service Division with the City of Phoenix. We met at a new federally funded cooling center at 28th Street in Washington. It's easy to miss, which I did at first. Driving on Washington, you probably wouldn't know it's there. The building is massive, however, and there's plenty of room for people to spread out. Rachel showed me around, starting with the first room you see upon entering. Right now we're in the cafeteria eating space and you'll see a lot of folks here. This is um, the time they can come pick up their meals. We've got lots of games, we've got magazines, lots of pets. We just saw several puppies and kitties interacting. And so this facility is open for both men and women and it's also pet friendly as well. Outside there's a shaded yard for dogs and misters and plenty of cat and dog food available. You're so pretty. <laughs> Look at you. The cafeteria is bustling. Along one wall is an army's worth of water bottles. There's also coffee and tea and even sodas available. The mood is lively as people congregate and cool off. This building was unused um, and the City of Phoenix partnered with Maricopa County to get it up and running before the real heat of the summer did for up to 200 people experiencing homelessness uh, and unsheltered. The center opened in May. The City of Phoenix used funds from the American Rescue Act to get it open and St. Vincent de Paul handles the on-ground operations every day. As Rachel showed me around, I could see people felt comfortable and relaxed. There was a TV room with lots of comfy recliners, separate sleeping and restroom facilities for men and women, and even a security guard between the two sleeping halls. It can shelter 140 men and 60 women every night. It was all very clean and much more comfortable than the 112 degrees outside. We've got storage for folks who, you know, sometimes that's a barrier for folks wanting to go indoors is their stuff or what's going to happen to their stuff. So we've got the ability to store people's belongings so that they can come in and receive shelter, cool down, get three meals a day, you know, um, work with case managers, etc. Even though this place started as a cooling center, there are plans to convert it into a year-round shelter. This is the most unique cooling station that we have at the city, certainly, and we put a lot of resource into it so that not only would we have it this summer, but for future summers as well. So it is intended to be at least around for the next few years um, in order for people to get out of the heat for the summer, have a place to be that's warm in the winter, and, and really be this shelter for up to 200 people a night. But how accessible are cooling stations? This one that I visited only allows certain people in. 
So this is actually a closed facility. So this is only open to the people who are residing here currently. So it first opened to people experiencing homelessness in this area. There was a, a neighborhood around this area and then also people around the Human Services Campus. So our service provider here is St. Vincent de Paul. They staff the shelter 24-7. Um, and then CBI, Community Bridges Inc., and the Human Service Campus help to uh, refer clients who are unsheltered. And when we do have openings, they will provide transportation to get them over here. Because this was sort of targeted to this neighborhood first and then the Human Service Campus for folks that are very vulnerable out there, we have a huge variety of ages here. So we're, we're seeing people, you know, of working age, seniors. The Washington and 28th Street Shelter is in many ways a pilot program. If it goes well, there's hope shelters like this one can be replicated. That's definitely what we're looking to do. But what about people who can't come to this shelter? What resources are available to them? We have outreach teams that go around that talk to the unsheltered folks. Hey, did you know there is a cooling center down the street um, at 9th and Jackson or, or 12th and Madison? So we have outreach teams that make folks aware. And then our Councilwoman Ansari, District 7, just provided a grant to a small nonprofit to actually provide transportation to folks who are too far to walk to a cooling center. So that's a really unique thing. Not all cooling centers are set up as shelters, like the one I visited. Community centers, such as public libraries, are often designated as cooling centers. Others are temporary, and even mobile stations, run by the Salvation Army. They have coolers filled with water, information about cooling centers, and some even have cooling towels people can use on their face and necks. These mobile stations can be sent into high-need areas or enter communities with limited access to resources and transportation. With the valley getting hotter and staying hotter longer, I wondered what our city leaders could do to help communities stay cool. Last fall, Phoenix took a bold step in protecting citizens from the heat. Mayor Kate Gallego created the Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. The goal is to have a department that not only provides relief options from the Arizona summers, but to also come up with novel ways of cooling the city. I went to City Hall to learn more on what Phoenix is actually doing. I'm Dave Hondula, Director of Heat Response and Mitigation for the City of Phoenix. Dave is also an associate professor at ASU's School of Geographical Sciences and Urban Planning and is an expert on urban heat. Part of what Dave and his office do is direct resources to the community to keep it cool. My academic colleagues and I have discovered across the United States how heat has been managed by cities has been perhaps a little bit more ambiguous than we would all think is ideal. 
Residents know who to call with crime issues. They know who to call if their trash isn't being collected. But who do you go to in city government if you think your neighborhood is too hot or if you think too many people are getting sick from heat? The Office of Heat Response and Mitigation is set to fill that role. Dave and his team created a plan that is already in motion this summer. The heat response plan you mentioned includes now 31 different programs and services. We're emphasizing certain populations, including unsheltered, including seniors, including folks living uh, in, in housing that might have a tough time staying cool. The department has been reviewing current programs the city offers to see what improvements can be made. An important adjustment we've made this year is to our direct heat relief outreach efforts. The city has had a direct outreach program called We're Cool for several years, which like many other programs had to morph during the COVID times. Now that we're to some extent coming out of COVID a little bit and with our new office, we had the chance to rethink how this program is operating. We're drawing from public health data to understand where our outreach teams can go. We're using more staff time than we ever have before to complete more ships. Uh, and we're so excited that we've been able to partner with our human services department. So our teams that are out on the streets now have a case manager embedded with them. In the past, our success has looked like getting heat relief supplies in people's hands and getting information about cooling centers and hydration stations in people's hands, which is really important. And we should be doing that work. But now with our case managers involved, we can start to answer questions about access to shelter, access to housing. How do we get an ID? How can we get connected to food stamps, social security income? And the answers to those questions are ultimately what's going to improve the heat resilience of our community over the long term. Other programs that are in action now include stationing volunteers out at parks and hiking trails. They warn people of the dangers of hiking in the heat. Dave says this not only can save visitors' lives, but also help first responders by preventing costly rescue efforts. Some of those rescues can be really technical. Those bring resources offline that might otherwise be helpful elsewhere in the city. Thus far, we've at nearly 40 outreach ships this summer as we're talking today. About 35 have been out on the streets and about five at trailheads. And we've engaged with 1,500 people so far and had well over 150 referrals into our human services department. Dave's office is coordinating with other community organizations to cast as wide a net of services as possible. Local nonprofits and charities can submit a request for supplies right on the office's website. Another thing the city chartered was a shade plan. In effect, to plant more shade trees around Phoenix in high traffic areas. That set a goal to double the tree canopy from, at the time it was approximately 12% to 25% was the goal by 2030. And the best available information suggests that we've probably held steady since 2010. The effort was slowed due to the Great Recession and then later the pandemic, but it didn't stop completely. Trees have been planted, just not at a high rate but the program is really starting to take root. The city is investing more money than ever in urban forestry. We re need to be really, really thoughtful about how we make those investments. The State Department of Water Resources has a list of acceptable trees that fit with the state's water conservation directives. We're trying to go above and beyond their list, their, their uh, recommendations, uh, to really focus where we can on native and desert adaptive trees, although we know that those aren't the perfect solution for every space. We know that people have really wide uh, opinions about what the right tree is for different locations. 
But the biggest factor in helping our communities survive the heat isn't just handing out water bottles or planting trees. It's more basic and urgent than that. It's become very clear to us, uh, as I'm sure is you know, clear to many, many listeners, when we're, we're out on the streets, we're very happy to be getting water in folks' hands and they seem appreciative, but we need to be the biggest cheerleaders for any investment in affordable housing. So when city council had affordable housing and homelessness programs as the number one investment in their most recent American Rescue Plan allocation, the single big, biggest large item, although it doesn't sound like heat relief immediately, I'd argue it is absolutely heat relief and that those are the investments that will ultimately bring down those illness and death numbers that we're, we're looking at. Hey listeners, did you know that you can carry the Arizona Republic in your pocket? Just download the AZ Central app to keep up to date on the news that matters to you. And a quick note before we continue this episode. This next section touches on the subject of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. So far, we've covered a lot of ground. But there's one more aspect of extreme heat I wanted to examine, and that's its impact on our psyche. Dr. Amy Kafer is a psychiatrist at the Valley Wise McDowell Clinic in Phoenix. Some of her patients experience Seasonal Affective Disorder, or SAD. You might be thinking, isn't that just something that happens to people in cloudy places or in winter? And the answer is yes, but it can happen in the summer as well. I asked Dr. Kafer how she would diagnose someone with seasonal depression. We diagnose with some sort of depressive disorder and then sort of a modifier or something we put at the end of it where we say something to qualify it, which it would be with a seasonal pattern to it. So it has to happen at least two years where they have an increase in their depressive symptoms during a certain time of the year. Unlike people who experience sad in the winter, summer sad has a more agitated quality to the symptoms. I've had a number of patients report to me that they get more depressed in the summertime. And it certainly makes sense that it would be in the summer, you think of, you know, there's probably more road rage and people are irritable and it'd be so agitated feeling in our summer when it's so, you know, 110 and above. Another danger that extreme heat poses is a rise in suicides. The psychiatric community says it is a misconception that suicide rates go up in the winter and around the holidays, and there are numerous studies and papers to back this up. In one study, published in the scientific journal Nature Climate Change, 
Thoughts of suicide and actual deaths by suicide increase significantly when the temperature goes up. The research suggests that as many as 21,000 more people in the U.S. and Mexico could die by suicide by 2050. This is based on projected temperature increases of 2.5 degrees Celsius in the U.S. and 2.1 degrees Celsius in Mexico. In uh, another study that came out in the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, in their psychiatry section, they had a study just that came out this past February that showed that days of extreme heat were associated with higher rates of mental health-related visits to emergency departments for all sorts of mental illnesses, depression obviously being one of those. So we know that high heat rates can uh, really affect all sorts of mental illnesses and can lead to needing to seek treatment evening to the point of an emergency room visit. When it comes to coping with the psychological effects of heat, Dr. Kafer suggests this. Well, if you have the means, I recommend everybody take uh, vacations in the summer from Phoenix. Uh, go to San Diego, go to Flagstaff. Getting out of the heat and having a break from it is uh, very good for your mental health. If it's not possible, you find other ways to try to beat the heat. Go water parks, uh, go you know, change your schedule if you can so you're doing stuff early in the morning. If you have to run errands, get up really early or do it really late, things like that, and try to avoid the worst part of the day when it's so hot out. And of course, always drink lots of water. <laughs> and if you feel you're experiencing more severe mental health issues, she says you can seek help from a therapist. If you have difficulty scheduling an appointment, there's more immediate help across the valley. There are emergency um, psychiatric centers in town. There's one in Central Phoenix, one in East Valley, one in the West Valley. Anybody can go to you for either urgent or if you just need a med refill because you've run out and you can't get in to see your provider for another two months or whatever the case may be, those places can also um, provide medication refills, things like that, and as well as emergency services. And if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts or having a mental crisis, the brand new Suicide and Crisis Hotline launched last week. Just simply call or text 988 on your phone to get help. Long-time residents know that extreme temperatures bring our monsoon rains. And that's something many Arizonans get giddy over. Cooling 
storms bring the unbearable temperatures down. The accompanying lightning show is always a wonder to see. But the favorite part for many people is the smell. There are actually physiological effects uh, that come from imbibing these fragrances. This is Gary Naban, an author and senior researcher at the Desert Laboratory at the University of Arizona in Tucson. I have been an, a desert ecologist and an agricultural ecologist for uh, 40 years. I've worked in Arizona, Sonora, and for the Forest Service program in Mexico on desert agriculture and have a PhD in arid lands resources. Gary's interest in the scent of desert rain was planted some decades ago. 40 years ago, when I was a guest teacher out on the Tahanoa Autumn Reservation, I asked the kids in a warm-up exercise, uh, junior high school and primary school children, what does the desert taste like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? And an eight-year-old uh, Native American boy raised his hand and said, the desert smells just like rain. That seemed to me such a paradox. That response inspired the title of his first book, the desert smells like rain. Years later at a workshop, he learned about the East Asian practice of forest bathing. The basic idea is to get out and connect with nature. And when I started looking at the primary literature on that, I realized that the desert plants all around us have many of those same chemicals, uh, five particular volatile oils that give the forest trails these fragrances that uh, have documented health benefits from the Hinoki cypress. And I realized we have 60 plants in the uh, Sonoran Desert that have those five volatile oils in significant quantities, in addition to 110 other volatile oils that build up on leaves during drought. So what makes up the smell of desert rain that we Arizonans crave? Creosote is one, but there are many more plants that add to the monsoon fragrance. Desert lavender, that's a common shrub used in Phoenix and Tucson. Mexican oregano, uh, brittle bush and salt bush, and we have three species of burr sage. The sage that's in all the cowboy films that's in northern Arizona also gives off strong smells but also a lot of other shrubs and wildflowers. The oils that we smell are adaptations to help these plants survive the harsh Sonoran climate. The hotter it gets, the higher density of these oils. And when it rains, they get spread around and into the air. and that's what we can smell almost from a mile away of the rain. And when we are walking through the desert when this happens, we're imbibing enough of those volatile oils that within two minutes, they reach our bloodstream. So it's in imbibing them in high densities 
far higher than what aromatherapy bottles often give people. Gary says that the smell of desert rain can help calm us and relieve stress. Speaking from my own experience, the scent of monsoons always triggers a sense of joy and relief. But Gary also argues that smelling this desert perfume does more than just tickle our noses. We're talking about volatile oil antioxidants that tangibly uh, reduce the cortisol levels. It's a major stress hormone. Cortisol has a part in affecting blood pressure and heart rate. And if smelling desert rain can help reduce cortisol levels, then it can have a positive effect on both of those processes, even if it's at a low level. Gary also says that exposure to this smell can help improve sleep patterns, stabilize emotional hormones, and even help reduce minor depression or anxiety. Of course, more research needs to be done, but it's exciting to think that our unique desert smell can produce so many benefits. To learn more about the services and programs mentioned in this episode, visit azcentral.com and search for Valley 101. If you like this story, I encourage you to go back and listen to our other episodes. You can find Valley 101 wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. And this podcast is made possible by you, our listeners. We rely on your curiosity about Phoenix and beyond. Submit your questions to us at valley101 at azcentral.com. You can also support this and all the work we do by subscribing to azcentral.com. I'm producer Kaylee Monahan. Until next time, stay cool and stay hydrated.